The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Even though you didn't know about his life, you know, obviously the fans didn't realize how much he was struggling until his passing, I think. But but you could still feel this connection to like a real person, a real soul, if you will, behind the music. This week's episode is dedicated to the late, great Tim Bergling, better known to his millions of fans as superstar DJ and producer Avicii. But behind the epic performances, the incredible collaborations with the likes of Chris Martin was a man dealing with crippling anxiety and addiction issues. Tim was just 28 when he took his own life four years ago. And now an official biography, simply called Tim, has been released with all profits going to the Tim Bergling Foundation, which supports the prevention of mental illness and suicide. Today, the book's author has very kindly joined us to talk more about the book and the brilliant soul who inspired it. Mons Musesen, welcome to Mad World. Thank you so much. I've been looking forward to this. It's going to be great. Listen, I've got so much to ask you about. But the first question I ask all of my guests is, how are you really right now? How are you? Yeah, you know, it's funny because now, of course, it's the most beautiful weeks in Stockholm, in Sweden. And I can feel in my body that, like last year, I I was so deep into this project, into finalizing this book. So now I realize that, you know, I I missed out on spring last year completely. So I can feel that sort of relief of actually seeing all this beautiful green stuff that's blooming right now. And that makes me in a great mood, you know. And and I was just in Gothenburg, my, my hometown, visiting my brother this mm-hmm. weekend. Yeah, so I feel I'm in I'm in a I'm in a good space. Mons, you're a journalist. You work for a national newspaper in Sweden. Right. This book is I mean I'll start by saying personally as someone who I knew very, I mean, I know, obviously, like everyone, we know Avicii's music, but I knew very little about the house music scene or anything like that. And I'd watched the documentary that was released after his death, but this, which was very moving and quite disturbing, but this is, this is just, this is such a huge picture of the man behind the music. And it's incredibly moving. And I think that, The thing about it is that on the one hand, yes, it's a story about the crazy music industry and what happens when you get to that level where, you know, the money almost becomes more important than the human. But on the other hand, the whole time I was reading it, so much of it resonated with me of this like boy who basically got into this thing that he really loved and often wasn't able to be true to himself because of the machinery around it but there's so much in there that resonates you don't have to be a sort of you know some a famous person to kind of to find something in it I wanted to ask and I'll I'll sort of get onto that but how did you end up writing this book so like you said normally I write for uh, a newspaper and I you know I wrote a piece about Tim right when he passed because Stockholm was so affected by it. I mean, Sweden was, of course, and the world was. But, you know, you could really sense a a difference in the whole city of Stockholm during those 
very, very sad days when he passed four years ago now. But it was also beautiful because, you know, the first thing that happened really, so he passed on a, on a Friday and then on, on the Saturday, on like the main square in this city, thousands of people showed up dancing, you know, to his music, crying and dancing. So I wrote a piece about that, you know, about sort of what he meant, I guess, to our community. And then going forward one year, his last album with his with the, the, the tracks that he was recording just days before his passing, that album was released. And so then I flew to Las Palmas to speak to his parents. And I didn't know at that time, you know, how sort of close and involved they had been throughout his whole career. And it was really interesting talking to them about this whole journey through the eyes of being a parent, you know, in all this, with all their concerns that they had had throughout his journey, you know. And we had really, I could sense right away that we had, we, you know, we had great conversations, candid, open, honest conversations about, you know, addiction, even, even early on. It was like they had decided already, I think, that if we're going to start to tell his story, we need to do it in a truthful manner, right? We, we, you can't just uh, sort of gloss over things because then it has no real value to it. The worst thing that can happen have already happened to them. And so, and it had been a year and I think they were already sort of set on this feeling that, that his story might actually might be, be, be helpful for other people if you tell it in a truthful and sort of respectful manner, you know? Yeah, so I wrote that second piece and then they asked me to, to write the book. That's sort of the short story of it. And, you know, I'm, I'm really grateful, of course, that they have, have been so open throughout this process. For instance, like one of the, the backbones really in this book, I would say, is that I was able to go through Tim's emails, right? It's 40,000 emails from like the very early stumbling steps upon the scene and then all the way throughout this 10-year-plus career, all the way up to his last days, really. And, I, you know, his friends have blessed me with text messages and pictures. So I'm able to see things through Tim's eyes quite much. At least I hope so, you know, um, to understand this crazy jumble of events that a super career like this is through his perspective. 
Yeah, but that's that's that that's the short backstory, I would say. <laughs> but it is crazy, like because what I didn't know, which I didn't sort of, was that Tim was essentially a teenage boy who was kind of anxious, very anxious a lot of the time, yeah. and he spent most of his time sitting in his bedroom playing World of Warcraft with his mates, right? Right. Yeah. And what I had no idea was that he sort of stumbled across this music program that other people were like using on computers and thought, well, I'll have a go at that, you know, because he's a techie genius and from that it's not that much of a leap <laughs> until he's sort of being called over to Ibiza and and playing in clubs I mean it's crazy right he was so stubborn and sort of strong-willed and you know he mastered so so back when they were playing video games him and his friends because that's what really what he, you know that's the kind of guy he is he's he's sort of an introvert geeky kind of guy who loved just spending time in his you know bedroom basically and he took all his friends there rather than going out on town and you know while they were going to sleep on these world of warcraft raids he just stayed up all night just really trying to understand all the tricks and sort of master the game and i would say that when he first started doing music that was a perfect fit for him because i think he at least in the beginning he thought about it almost mathematically it, to sort of master and break this program if you know what i mean to the fl studio which is the software i think that was like really what was so fun to him was to sort of get behind the program if that makes sense and i think that makes it that's that's why it's not it all connects in a way you know he made music in the same um <laughs> stubborn way that he would play video games I don't know if I'm making sense right now, but do you know no, what I mean? No, you are. And what I you know, love is that he saw that someone had made some record through this right. program that had had millions of streams or whatever. My, I'm sounding like an old lady now with my terminology. And he was like... That was Bass Hunter. He was pretty big in, in the UK as well. Bass Hunter, yeah. He was yeah. like an old... Bass Hunter, that, that novelty record he did. And he thought, I'll have a go yeah. at this. And, you know, yeah. th thank God he did think that. The music that he created, you know, it was, you, you know, you, you mentioned about the day after he died and people just playing his music in a square in Stockholm. And his music was all about connection, wasn't it? It was yeah. all about connection with something bigger, like, I, I guess, yes. a sort of higher power almost, you know. And yet behind this was this, you know, quite lonely young man who he was... You know, this isn't a morality tale about fame and fortune because he wasn't in it for that, was he? He was in it because he loved making the music and he was bloody yes. good at it. No, that's exactly right. And I think that's why, you know, he had this sensibility that is quite rare. And especially, I would say, in this genre at this time, which was, you know, it was really blaring music. A lot of times, you know, and Tim, as a listener, you could sense in all his tracks that here is a person speaking to me sort of behind the, the bass line, behind the, the drums. 
which made you, even though you didn't sort of know about his life, you know, obviously the fans didn't realize how much he was struggling. Uh, a lot of them, you know, didn't really know that until his passing, I think. But but you could still feel this connection to like a real person, a real soul, if you will, behind the music. And it made you sort of care for that someone. You can sort of sense Tim's vulnerability in his tracks. As, you know, euphoric as they are, there's still this very special sensibility to them. He started out, he was very anti-drugs. Like he didn't really want, yeah. he wasn't interested in them. He'd had a bad experience with some dope or something. Yeah. But it's, you know, again, it's this tragic thing. He had bad acne, didn't he, as a teenager? And he started yeah. taking this medication that cleared it up and suddenly he had confidence and he could approach girls. But there's this heart-rending bit where he ends up hospitalised with pancreatitis in the in the book and in his life and i which is in part caused by the acne medication but also by just the exhaustion and the intensity of this world he's found himself in he's touring he's traveling he's never he doesn't know what city he's in and he says you know you and obviously you've got access to all of these text messages and emails and he says those days in hospital were the most anxiety and stress-free days i can remember the past six years those were my true vacations, as depressing as it might sound. And there's that sort of, you know, even though you know how this story ends and you know how this book ends, the whole way through, I was wanting to reach into the pages and give him a hug and say, you know, how did no one see? But of course they did. And it's just, as you make the point so often, so beautifully in this book, that it's so complex and it's so much more nuanced than that. And there was so much other stuff going on. Yeah, I think that was one of my actually first real revelations. It came quite early on in this process. I think that I had the idea, as I'm sure that a lot of fans have had the idea, that Tim was this uh, sort of well-off, happy-go-lucky kind of guy who was just thrusted into a mad, evil industry that sort of kills people and you know there are some truth to that of course once you go to his level it's really insane how much the workload for him was unbearable and it is a dirty industry in a lot of ways but you know as soon as I started to talk to childhood friends to his parents it became clear quite quickly that you know it's not only that, because this is also a guy that had been struggling with anxiety and, you know, could have a hard time just going on like a social function among his own friends, you know? He first had therapy when he was 14. Exactly. Yeah. So for me, I feel that that is an important part to, to sort of nuance that image a little bit because I also feel that that makes him more of a human being you know he's like a real person he's not someone who's always been this brand this Avicii brand he's he's Tim Bergling you know and I think that I'm glad you made that point earlier that that you can identify with some of the things he went through because I've really tried to make you know I really hope that the reader will be able to 
sort of reflect on their own behaviors and their own lives while reading this. And things like this, you know, it is complex. It's always nuanced, especially when you get to know someone the way that I feel that I know Tim now. I would make him a disservice, I think, if I didn't sort of paint this in... There there are some, you know, gray... What's that word in English? Gray Things areas. Things are complicated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gray yeah. areas, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's not just black and white. I, I think also exactly. what really comes across in the book, which I think is anyone can relate to, is the sense of going into something that you think you want to do, but being caught in what you kind of feel everyone's expecting you to do. And I know it sounds corny, but it's that thing of not being able to be true to yourself and how actually critical that is to our well-being. And he gets stuck and how easily it is to get caught in this cycle of trying to kind of just reach everyone else's expectations of you. And, you know, after the pancreatitis, he is, you know, he becomes addicted, essentially. I mean, this book touches on so many things. The opioid crisis, you know, you talk about Purdue Pharma, but he essentially becomes addicted to painkillers. And he is he's essentially taking pills to numb the pain, taking pills to wake him up, taking pills to put him to bed. You know, and it's like he's just in this cycle that is very difficult to get out of and you know he especially during the first years really of his career he wasn't easy to just sort of push he wasn't someone that was just pushed around which i also think is sort of a misconception about him he was super stoked about his career and he wanted his name written in the sky you know He was so committed to his music. And so for a long time, he had a hard time, you know, accepting the help that was offered to him. You know, when people were reaching out and feeling worried that he he worked too much, he took too many pills. He had a way, which I think is super common, by the way, Mm. to push all those, everything he sort of deemed as a negative emotion or anything that sort of hindered his career he just pushed that aside and he actually can i read you just a piece where he writes about that himself yes i'd love that yeah because you know because i was so happy when i found out you know all the things that he himself had wrote about these type of issues you know reflecting because you know down the line he and i'm sure we'll touch on this but you know he he ends up at this rehab clinic in Mm. ibiza where he starts to write about sort of his journey there Mm. and this is just a, a a small little piece from that where he he's saying my procrastination it needed to be explained to me very logically and caveman esque for me to truly understand its nature and how it was harming me. Ouch, pain. Why me pain now? Uncomfortable feeling. Future Tim, deal with pain. Future Tim, deal with pain better than present Tim because already there's too many present pains more urgent to deal with. I think it's beautiful to to sort of get this in, in his own words. And again, I for certain can sort of relate to that. 
it's not only other expectations, it's the expectations that you have on yourself as well, you know? And, and so everything that, that sort of is in its way, ah, oh, you just, we have to take that some other day because now I just need to reach this next, you know, goal of mine. And for him, he had 10, 15, 20 things like this to do in a day, you know? Prepare new new sets and make new tracks and be part of some commercial. And it, my point is that it, it really took him a while to sort of understand how destructive that that habit is. I mean, it's a lifetime's work, isn't it? I think that that bit, I'm glad you read, read that bit out because I had referenced it. That is, I mean, just personally, I, 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 you know, I'm in recovery from addiction and uh, that really resonated, that thing of like, you put it off to another time because it's almost like the pain is too great now. You, you don't think about the pain in the future. It's like you just need to get through. And there was so and, much. And, you it. know, and, and, and that's the thing with painkillers. You know, it's not only, of course, they are crazily addictive in how they affect the brain and the body. But it's also a, a, a mental addiction. You know, the fact that they do work in the sense that they they do give you that period of relief from all the things that are really hard to cope with right now, you mm. know? Well, they work until they stop working, don't they? I think that's the thing that people forget is that these are, these are for a while, they're solutions. Yep. And then there's often an assumption that once you stop taking them or you stop, you, you get yourself off the thing that you've been addicted to, that life is suddenly rosy. But of course, that's not the case because life is still throwing at you all the things it was throwing at you before. But this time, you know, you don't have anything to buffer you from it, which is where yeah. the chapters about his time in this rehab were really and how he goes in there and he's doing it like a lot of people, I think, who turn up in rehab. He's doing it for other people. He's like, oh, this, I'll just do this to shut them up. And then by the end of it, he's had this quite transformative experience, right? Yeah, a true turning point that is it's just a couple of months really but it changed his perception on so many things you know and uh, you know especially his own sort of thinking this is you know just by the way this is such a beautiful place you know you go into the pine forest and become really sort of hidden from other world you know and everybody turn off their cell phones and finally no more inboxes screaming at you you know so you know the first thing apart from you know weaning off the drugs was that he he was actually able to sleep you know and then he was sitting up in the rooftop on the roof of the clinic and then by night he would make excursions out into the forest you know where, where all these wild rabbits are running around you know and for the first time in a long while he sort of connected with his environment you know if that makes sense and started to really he started to read up on books that was there at the clinic and one thing that really resonated with him was you know mindfulness and Tim is a big reader, by the way. P people might not think that, you know, because 
this genre is not sort of something that we connect to to, yeah. to reading but but he, he he had always been a great reader and so then when he started to read up on mindfulness and realized you know how how old those thoughts are going back to buddhism really you know that was a big revelation for him this fact that you know you can in meditation observe your emotions and feelings and not be so harsh to them you know just listen to them just see see them and and acknowledge that they are there you know and not be pissed that they are there that was sort of groundbreaking for him i would say very eye-opening so as as strange as that m- may sound you know there are at least parts of this journey that to me are really positive oh my god i was just gonna say to you like there is there is so much hope in this book which it, as you say sounds sounds impossible this book came to my attention because I have a friend who works in the record industry and he passed it to me. I think he must have got a, like a proof copy. And he said, yep. you have to read this book. This is an amazing book about mental health, but also about the record industry. It's fantastic. And I and as I was reading it, I had this sense of real, I felt, I felt real hope. You know, he, he starts reading Eckhart Tolle. He starts reading and I thought... And I, I've felt, you know, and I think this is something that a lot of readers have found of it. You know, you go on this journey and you feel, and I started ordering all the books that he was reading in rehab, right. all of your further reading in it. I was like, because it is, it is, you know, if there's anything we can learn from this book is that Tim was on, you know, he was on a, he was on a beautiful path, you know, of yeah. self-discovery. And I, and I, that's kind of what I want to focus on because I think that, and this is also some, a real misconception about suicide, is we have this idea of suicidal people as that you'll be able to see it, you'll be able to know it. And yet we know again and again, people say they never saw it coming. And there's, so obviously it's all a tragedy, but it, in the months leading up to his death, he seemed to have found some sort of equilibrium, right? He'd, he was going to move back to Sweden from LA. He was meditating. And there's this bit of, which I've written down after his death, where his father, Klaas, is in LA clearing out his studio. And you write, he had walked next to his son all those years, seen Tim feel bad. So why had he never realised the full extent of the problem? That it would end this way had never crossed Klaas's mind, not even in his worst nightmares, least of all when their son had been in the middle of his most creative flow in many years. The only thing his parents had heard from Tim in the days before he died was how fantastic the songs were, how beautiful it was in the desert, how much he was looking forward to travelling to Iceland with his siblings. Klaas had also talked to the therapist in Stockholm. This is who his mother Anki spoke to. She had called suicide a serial crash of the mind. A few days of anguish and anxiety that had thrown Tim back to a place that those around him thought he had left behind. That to me was such a powerful, powerful couple of paragraphs about what suicidal thoughts are and how out of the blue they can come. Yeah, thank you. I really wanted to to sort of discuss the mechanisms behind suicidal thoughts here. And I'm really glad, you know, by the way, that there are so many friends of his that I've spoke to that share their own experiences dealing with these kind of issues like panic attacks and addiction but also suicidal thoughts and how 
hard, how really hard they can hit you in a very short period of time. You know, that it really is an emergency, a crisis that, you know, can just engulf you and sort of shift all the perspectives, right? Some people describe it as this tunnel that that you're sort of trapped. You're entrapped in this tunnel that is sort of slowly closing in on you. Meaning that when you're in that crisis, you can't see the solutions. You really are that affected by it that there is no future all of a sudden, you know? And you can come past that. But it's not, I'm, I'm saying it, it makes it sound easy to, to just sort of realize this and have the tools. Of course, it's not that easy. But it's super sad, the fact that he, he really was, creatively, he was in his f- flow again, you know. He was so happy and proud about the last tracks that he recorded. Yeah, I don't, you know, it's just sad. And also, I think the what for me is so powerful about this book is that obviously the Tim Burgling Foundation is there for suicide and mental illness prevention. But I think I think often when we talk about suicide prevention, it can be very painful for those left behind um, who have experienced who have been bereaved by suicide. Because, you know, I have a friend who's just experienced it in her family and. You know, it's that sense of, well, what could I have done? What could I have done to make it, you know, stop or to have changed it or to have helped this person? And actually, I think it's really important to know that it isn't, you know, there is there is often nothing we can do. Sadly, for some people, it is it's just as cancer can kill some people. You know, mental illness does, unfortunately, lead to this, which is not a very articulate way of putting it. But I think what I found really helpful about this is that the way that this will help to prevent it in the future is that reading that suicide is a serial crash of the mind, yeah. right? And that it can pass. And just as suddenly as it can come on you, it can go again, you know? Exactly that. Yep. And I think that is a really powerful thing for all humans to know because it gives you, even if when you're in those crashing thoughts, if you have that slight knowledge at the back of your head that it might pass, it might pass tomorrow, tomorrow, not today, just stay, just stay today, just stay this hour. That's the power. And that's where the prevention comes in, if that makes sense. No, yeah. Amen. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It's honestly, it's such an astonishing book. And I, I felt this sadness that I... Hadn't like I I think I was t- too old really to, to get into Avicii's <laughs> right. music, but I I I now want to go and devour all of his music, and I want to know about the Tim Burgling Foundation. Can you tell me a bit about that and the work it does? Yeah, sure. And how his parents are doing? It's never too late to discover him, by the way, musically. You really should. I think I know more of his songs than I I thought I didn't know them, but of course I do, you know. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to sing Wake Me Up <laughs> because nobody needs to hear my rendition of that, but... No, but it's 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 also, you know, again, I feel that I know the guy right now, but I'm, I don't think you have to do that to, to get very touched by his music. He really had a special kind of touch so, you know, I, I would just urge everybody who, because he was put in, and that was a thing that he sort of had a hard time dealing with at times, that he was, you know, labeled as a part of this EDM movement, which made sense, of course, because he was in the forefront of that. 
but he also had this feeling of sometimes people can't see that I'm making real music here. Mm. You know what I mean? Like they don't see how much work I put in to really make this music as emotional as, as it can be, you know? Anyway, that's a side note. Yeah, the, the, the foundation is really a beautiful thing. They had just set it up when I started to, to talk to, to the parents. And in a way, of course, this, and they, you know, this, that's not a controversial statement because they are saying it themselves that, you know, in a way, of course, it's a part of their grieving process to set up this a foundation that in different ways, what they do is they fund and help other organizations that have way more experience in suicide prevention and mental health issues. But what I think is beautiful about it is that Klaus and Anki, Tim's parents, so early on decided that, you know, the the worst thing that can happen to parent have already happened to us. It can't be undone, you know. It it's just Tim is gone. But they recognize how much power his name has, of course, you know, and how deeply affected the fans are by his story because they as soon as Tim passed they just were over flooded by emails and letters and flowers and like real profound stories that the listeners wanted to share with them there is a certain connection between the listeners and a guy like this, you know, and they recognize that they can do something with that. So like one of the things that they have done so far, just to give you, you know, one example is that they have funded so that uh, one of the main suicide helplines here in Sweden can be open 24 mm seven -hmm. in a way that it wasn't before. So they, they try to find um, really hands on ways of helping other organizations deal with these type of issues. Mons, thank you so much for coming and sharing Tim's story with us today. And um, I feel a bit weird saying it's a fantastic book because obviously it, it's born out of such tragedy, but thank you for telling his story. And please thank Klaas and Anki for, you know, for, for their generosity and allowing this to be told, you know, because yeah. they didn't have to do that. Thank you so much. Send them Thank you. send them our love. And um yeah, and so um Tim, the official biography. That's how I'll always think of him as Tim, not Avicii. Right. Yeah. I like that. And and I'll be sure to give give them a hug. Please. Thank do. you so much for having me. I, I, I really appreciate any any chance of, of not only discussing the book, but you know, discussing these these broader topics. I, I really feel it's important that we have a, you know, a real conversation about this. So thank you. Before you go, please follow Mad World on your podcast app to make sure you never miss an episode. And if you feel like it, leave us a rating and a review. I love to read what you think about the shows and also see your guest suggestions. Mad World is all about helping our listeners, and I love hearing from you. 
The Telegraph also let me loose in column form. So if you'd like to hear even more from me, head to telegraph.co.uk forward slash madworld and you can get your first 30 days access to the website completely free. If you've been affected by anything we've talked about in our podcast today, the following organisations offer free and confidential support over the phone. The Samaritans can be reached 24 hours a day, seven days a week on 116 123. Or you can contact the mental health charity Mind for advice on a range of mental health issues. Their phone number is 0300 123 3393. That's 0300 123 3393. They're accessible 9am to 5pm, Monday to Friday, excluding bank holidays. There's also Young Minds who provide support if you're a parent or a carer worried about a child's welfare. They're on 0808 802 5544. That's 0808 802 5544. If you prefer tech support, Shout is a 24-7 UK crisis tech service available for times when people feel they need immediate support. By texting Shout to 85258, you will be put in touch with a trained crisis volunteer who will chat to you via text. And importantly, please remember this. You are not alone. Where's that dust coming from? Still finding debris after vacuuming? Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.